morning, everybody. Able to hear me in the back? So it's my uh, pleasure to be here this morning at New Village Church. Um, and like Dave said, I'm an elder at Harborview Christian Church in Port Jeff Village. And I am a uh, seminary student in a program called the Timothy Pastoral Apprenticeship. Um, the program is out of the Midwest and it's described as a radically church-centered theological training program that couples strenuous academics with hands-on invested ministry in the life of a local church. And it's designed to prepare men for pastoral ministry. It's right out of their uh, website. <laughs> so I just finished a career as a Nassau County police officer. I retired this past January out of the Special Victims Squad and I uh, dealt with child exploitation victims. And if anything is going to make you revisit your biblical worldview, it will be dealing with um, victims of abuse um, in a world that is pushing us further and further from a biblical worldview. And I, I looked around as Jesus became bigger in my life, and I said, I can't, I can't do this. I, can't, I can take dad or your uncle or your soccer coach away for a day or a year or 10 years, but I can't make things right unless I can share Jesus with these victims. And um, the world went sideways and my career just came to a, an end at the, at the right time. And um, in God's providence, in an investigation that I was conducting before I was in special victims, led me to uh, run into some brothers of ours in uh, South Dakota who have this uh, pastoral apprenticeship and it's set up for, uh, for adults, not necessarily for young people right out of high school or college. Um, I'm here with my wife of almost 25 years, Christine, and we have two sons, uh, Jimmy, who is himself in seminary at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, and he's working in college ministry in North Carolina. He was married last month to his college sweetheart, um, they met at Elon University. He was playing soccer there and studying exercise science, and he was saved while um, in college through the Fellowship for Christian Athletes. And by the time he, he left um, his undergrad, he was the, uh, the head of the Fellowship for Christian Athletes at Elon University. Um, my younger boy, Anthony, um, played lacrosse and studied at Manhattan College and has just decided to uh, join the Coast Guard. He's enlisting in the Coast Guard. So we have a lot going on in our, our family. Um, today I'm going to be speaking on the Great Commission. And um, I want to explain why the Great Commission is so important to me. I was only saved five years ago. Um, I grew up in a household with a non-practicing Catholic father and a, Jehovah's a practicing Jehovah's Witness mother. Um, and from my childhood and adolescence, I proselytized a false gospel with a false Jesus and with, without even a belief in the Holy Spirit assisting me. Um, and I was seeking to share my faith with people and spoke to hundreds if not thousands of people in those years, my 
childhood, my adolescence. I left in my early 20s um, and not once heard the gospel from a Christian. Nobody defended their door, doorstep. Um, and then when I became a Christian, I looked at that and I'm like, wow, LDS, Mormons, and Jehovah's Witnesses are absolutely, totally lost when it comes to the gospel. And they're coming to our doors and we're hiding from them. And they see that as confirmation that we don't know God. Because they know you're home. They know that you, they saw you when they were going up the other side of the road. They saw you working in your garage. Now they know you're home and you might have like a thank you Jesus sign or a bumper sticker or a fish bumper sticker. And they're like, wow, these people, these people are scared of us, you know. Um, so I left my cult in my early 20s. And I was agnostic for two decades. And I understand that God is sovereign over everything, including the timing of our salvation. But I, I want to see Christians at least comfortable enough in their beliefs that they would defend their homes and their families from the satanic message of the cults. Because there's no other way to, uh, to mince words. Um, so let's look at Jesus' last instruction to his apostles. He's been crucified and resurrected, and now he's meeting with his 11 to give them some final instruction. So turn with me to Matthew 28, uh, and we're going to look at 16 through 20. So Matthew 28, verse 16. And before we read God's word, I'm just going to uh, say a prayer for us. Father, thank you for being here. Thank you for this congregation, for these elders and deacons, leadership, for this worship team, and for these Christians who are want to be faithful to you. Thank you for this opportunity to speak to them uh, from my life experience, but more importantly, from your word. Um, we love you. We thank you for this day. And I ask that you allow me to get out of the way and for your word to flow through me and for these words to not come back void, but to reach the hearts that you want to turn from hearts of stone to hearts of flesh and to encourage the Christians that hear this message. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Matthew twenty-eight sixteen. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So I want to really look at what's happening here. This is the resurrected Christ. See, if Jesus had authority in their eyes before his death, imagine what attention he held after his resurrection. I mean, contextually, this man just proved himself to be God. He foretold his betrayal, 
his arrest, his death, and his resurrection. And that last part, by the way, is the part that really gets your attention. And this plays right into what the reading is explaining. We can infer from verse 16 that his disciples had some sort of instruction to meet at this mountain in Galilee. We aren't told any more than that. So we don't know if it was discussed before his death or during one of the previous post-resurrection visits that they had, but somehow they knew that they were to be here at this mountain. And they then, in verse 17, they saw him and they worshipped him. And I think that certainly shows an appreciation for who he just demonstrated himself to be. Because you don't worship your rabbi, not a monotheistic Jew. So I think it's the retired detective in me that really enjoys little proofs of scripture's authenticity um, that really appreciates what Matthew says here. He doesn't hide from the fact that some doubted. And it's quite simple. If this amazing series of events was a fictional writing designed to convince people of a lie, they would have never acknowledged doubt. They never would have even brought it up. But we doubt. It's what we do especially when we are confronted with something that makes absolutely no sense. Our brains simply do not believe what our eyes just saw. And this happens to eyewitnesses all the time. The Greek here, though, is very interesting. The word used here for doubted is a Greek word, distazo, and it means to doubt, waver, or hesitate. These are humans, so they doubted or hesitated. And the only other place in scripture that distazo is used is in Matthew describing Peter walking on water. I could turn there, Matthew 14. You all know the story. Verse 30. But when he saw the wind, 1430, I'm sorry. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? So this doubt or hesitation isn't just natural. It's to be expected in a way. It makes, for me, it makes the author appear more honest. But what did the disciples do? They worshiped him. And this is, again, proof of Christ's deity. Just as the women at the tomb and the apostle Thomas, they worshiped Jesus without rebuke. And for my non-Trinitarian friends, twice in the book of Revelation, John fell down to worship the angel that was showing him these visions. And twice he was corrected by the angel. In both chapters, then I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brother who hold to the testimony of Jesus. 
worship God. Jesus is no angel. He is God, and this is just another proof when you see things like that. So as we dive into Jesus' instruction, let's examine how he begins. And he begins in verse 18 of chapter 28 with what I like to call a caveat. So verse 18, it says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Call this a caveat because a caveat is a Latin term used in legal proceedings and it's meant as a warning. As if to say, pay attention because I'm about to tell you something of great significance. So here, Christ's warning is, I have all authority. In other words, I've been sent back by my father and I'm speaking as his apostle. I now speak on his behalf. So this is not a suggestion. It's not a recommendation. It's not a good idea. This is a formerly dead man standing on the beach, a man you have just fallen down to worship, and this man you have worshiped because you realize he is God is saying to you, I want to make you aware that I'm speaking on the behest of the king of all kings and you're now being given a mandate. And before we move on, contemplate for a moment what our lives would really look like if we actually believed what I just described. Can we imagine what all authority would look and feel like? So the mandate given with all authority, let's look at verse 19 in chapter 28. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So let's examine this mandate given to us by this formerly dead man who receives worship and claims to be speaking for the creator of everything. R.C. Sproul breaks this into four imperatives. It's right in front of us. Go, make disciples, baptize, and teach. So the first imperative is go. Jesus practically spent his entire life within Israel. He did visit Egypt as a baby. That was to avoid being murdered by King Herod and to fulfill prophecy. Prophecy from 750 years prior. In, in Hosea chapter 11, it says, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt, I called my son. Let's look at Matthew chapter 2. Let's turn back to chapter 2, verse 13.
Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. Here's the linchpin. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. So Jesus is seen throughout the Gospels calling people to himself, equipping them and sending them out on a mission. My son Jimmy um, is a missionary in North Carolina. He's working in college ministry while in seminary studies, and this is a modern version of what going could look like. I looked at your board in the back. You guys support quite a few missionaries. It's, it's uh, really neat to see. My son is on college campuses that have an international presence. Um, other nations are sending their kids to, to our universities, and so he's able to meet them there. But wherever we go, we go with the purpose of this great commission. This can be when we go to another state or region or even nation, but it can also be when we go to work or school or our own homes. Can you think of a more important mission than those? Do the people in our lives know that we are Christians? Do they see Christ in us? How is our own family doing? What kind of an example are we to our own spouses and children? Are we even going to our own families one room over? Maybe you have to unplug something for a moment to have a conversation, but we don't have to go across the world necessarily. Second imperative is to make disciples. Now, making disciples is about more than simply repeating the gospel and praying. And I don't want to minimize that because that's the start. That's the necessary start. People have to hear the gospel and we have to pray for them fervently. But disciples are made by face-to-face, one-on-one training. We proclaim, we teach, and we train. Mature Christians are to come alongside newer Christians and teach them. I, I read while preparing this message that Billy Graham would lay awake at night wondering about the people who had made the decision for Christ at his rallies. Was anyone following up with them? Was anyone teaching them? Was anyone helping them become grounded in their faith? And I found that to be pretty cool that Billy Graham had that concern because we are called to more than just sharing and converting people to Christ. We are to teach them, to ground them, and to help conform them to Christ. That's our mission as Christians. We are to talk with them, walk with them, minister to them. We're to take their hands and be their guide. 
Greg Ogden is the author of Discipleship Essentials, and um, this was the book that was used on me. He describes a fundamental need for intentional relational disciple-making. And this mandate is described throughout the New Testament scriptures. In Titus 2.4, older women are to train younger women. In 2 Timothy 2.2, Paul trained Timothy to train others to train others. In Ephesians 6, verse 4, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Hebrews 3.13, all Christians are to exhort each other every day to avoid sin and to stir each other up to love and good works every day. And 1 Peter 4.10, all Christians are to use their gifts to serve others. So the third imperative is baptism. This is a sign of our covenant to Christ. We are to be united to him. We are to be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We submit to the triune God, and our baptism is a sign of God's faithfulness to us a sign that God gave all of his son to all who believe. And what this sign is saying is that this person now has identified with Jesus in his death, burial, and his resurrection, acknowledging I was dead in my trespasses and sins under the judgment of God, I was buried but I am now raised to newness of life because I'm in Christ. And in baptism, Jesus is claiming this person as his own through the church. And the church is announcing, this here is one of ours. This is our brother and our sister. Those who believe are baptized. And the apostle Paul says that there's one Lord one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. And your baptism says more about your story and relationship to Christ than any sermon ever could. And it's part of our mandate. The fourth imperative is to teach. We are commanded to teach others. We don't stop with conversion, and we don't stop with baptism. We live in communion with and fellowship with one another. We teach each other to observe or, or obey all that Jesus commanded. His ministry has been recorded and preserved and as Jesus said in Matthew 24, 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Think about that for a moment. His words came out of his mouth with an eternal 
guarantee. There's nothing else we need than his words. We have a practical example of holiness at the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's chapter 5 through 7, but it can all be boiled down even further in Matthew 22. Turn to chapter 22, verse 36. If you look, it says a lawyer asked him a question. As a detective, it figures a lawyer would be asking the questions. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now, if we really meditate on just these two commandments, we see that we fall short on a daily basis. You could boil it all down to two, right? Because if we love the Lord, our God, with all of our heart, soul, and mind, we would obey his commands, like this commission. And if we loved our neighbor, we would really focus on where they were spending eternity. If a neighbor's house were on fire, would you tell them? I think it's obvious any of us would. And why? Why would we tell our neighbor that their home was burning? I think it's because burning to death doesn't sound like a good way to spend an evening. How about eternity? Because if their house is on fire and you're watching the Super Bowl, you're willing to sacrifice something. Or you're having a good meal, you're willing to sacrifice something to go over there and knock on their door, call 911, do what you have to do to get them out of there. Are we willing to risk being uncomfortable to keep our neighbors from an eternal fire? or even our family members. Now let's go back to our passage, Matthew 28. Look at 20, part B of 20. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Think about this for a minute. Think about this promise to these disciples at this mountain in Galilee. How about today? This promise extends to these disciples in this sanctuary. He is with us. He is with us always to the end. Wherever you go in my name, I will be with you, Jesus said. 
And he also said, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. You see, there's no place we can go and not have him. And there is nobody we should fear other than him. Do we trust that? Do we trust him for that? Are we emboldened by that? Turn with me to Matthew chapter 1, verse 23. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So let's look at his fulfillment of prophecy from the Old Testament, um, Isaiah 7:14. He was speaking to people who knew scripture. They didn't have to look it up like I do. When he said things, it rang bells. It, 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 it woke them up when he said things. Isaiah seven fourteen. therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. So from 750 years prior, we are told the baby born of a virgin will be God with us. And in Matthew's account, Jesus is introduced as God with us. And yet in today's reading, it is the last thing he tells us before his ascension to the right seat of his father. I am with you always to the end of the age. I am Emmanuel. as I wrap things up in conclusion in Romans we see an interesting response to a promise of Genesis in the garden um, why don't we turn to Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 you all know this scripture I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Anybody here like me? Anybody here wonder when will this crushing of Satan's head be? Or more significantly, maybe not more significantly, or how his head will be crushed? Let's turn to Romans chapter 16, verse 20. 
the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. The God of peace is going to crush Satan under your feet. Think about that. God's plan is to use us to crush Satan. Do we walk around like that? We are being offered an opportunity to be used by God to fulfill his plan for eternity. And we do it by following the Great Commission. So as I alluded to earlier, this is how it began in my home. I, I came out of this Jehovah's Witness theology that had my brain all twisted. Um, I did what most Jehovah's Witnesses who leave do. I became agnostic because as you lo lose faith in an organization because it can't stand up, it's not the rock that your faith is supposed to stand upon, um, you're lost and you see that as God. And so I was agnostic for 20 years. But I started seeking. And I ran into two Christians, my next door neighbor and a fellow father on my son's soccer team. Two Christians asked me two questions. This is how simple it could be when you're talking to people that you know at work or friends or neighbors or family members. First question, is the Bible the inspired word of God? And one of the things that being a Jehovah's Witness was different than the Mormon missionaries is they believe that they believe the Bible. They might have a distorted version of it, but they believe the Bible. So I answered yes. As I answered yes, I'm convicted in my heart, then why aren't I reading it like I believe it? If my father left me a message, my grandfather left me a message and died, I'd be looking at that, that journal over and over again. I'd never poured over the scriptures like I believed it. And the second question by my other friend was, if you died today, where would you go and why? And this changed my life for eternity. Shortly after answering these questions, there was a Bible study in my home that began with me and extended to my wife, Christine, and then our sons, and soon my own mother was sitting in. There were five of us. All five of us were eventually saved, discipled, baptized, and taught. So in my family, we take this mandate, mandate quite seriously because we have seen what can be started when a Christian follows Christ's instruction. You see, we need the gospel. We need it personally. We need to be meditating on it. We need to be thinking about it every day, and we need to share it. The fact that our sin has separated us from a holy God and that God sent his son to live the righteous life that we could never live, that he was tortured and murdered for us, and that he was resurrected and ascended to heaven before witnesses, before eyewitnesses. And those eyewitnesses told the story and were willing to be killed for telling that story. They did not go back on that story Show me an eyewitness that's willing to be tortured and killed, and I'll show you somebody who's telling you the truth. Not, they're not telling. Liars make horrible martyrs, is the quote. And now we are being given the opportunity to be judged as if we lived his life. 
that's the message that saves, as I said earlier, and that's the start. In R.C. Sproul's commentary on the Great Commission, he states that any church that accepts the commission and works to fulfill it, trusting in the promise it contains, will be a blessed body of believers. A new village, be that church. Go, make disciples, baptize, and teach. And remember, it begins in our own homes. Thanks for your attention.